my title, the title of my message is aptly named, It's All About Me, It's Not About Him. Now, that sounds weird, right? It's like, it sounds familiar, but it's backwards. If you walk out these doors, over both of the doors, we have a saying, we have t-shirts and everything. It says, it's not about me, it's all about him. But as I mentioned, you know, I kind of stepped back and realized, you know, I was making this all about me. I made it uh, about how we tend to focus on ourselves uh, in ways uh, that are not pleasing to God in our lives. You know, if we're a child of God, it doesn't mean that the minute that we wake up until the minute we go to sleep at night, that we are going to joyfully and obediently follow his will. You know, unfortunately, most of my choices, you know, even in how I choose to worship and how I choose to pray, how I choose to study, they're rooted in what I want. They're not really rooted in what he wants. And to look all the way back to where all this selfishness started, you know, on a reference back to the first human being to ever walk the planet. And the first human being is, of course, Adam. And in Genesis 3, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall sure, not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So, right there, you have Adam, you have Eve. And imagine, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, we look back, and what's our opinion? Why did you do that? Look, I mean, golly, how stupid were you? I mean, look what you had. Can you imagine? I mean, imagine what Adam and Eve had at the time that all this went down, right? God created a paradise on earth. There were no dangers. You know, they were safe. They were secure. They were healthy. They ruled over all the animals. They had all the food and the shelter and the comfort that they ever needed, they ever desired. And all they had to do was be grateful to God and to worship him. That's all the Lord wanted. He created man to have fellowship with him. That's all he wanted from us. And that's all he had to do. But instead of that, what happened? They were presented with something. They were presented with something that they could not have in a way that made it so appealing to them, they chose to throw away all the blessings that God had given them in exchange for taking the fruit of the tree for which they were forbidden to touch. Now, our desire to do what we want instead of doing what God wants is the heart of selfishness. Even in our walk, we make selfish choices in how we choose to worship. And for this, if we look back, again, a little bit further forward, we look at Cain and Abel. You know, it was a great example. In Genesis 4, 3, it says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought uh, of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? Simply put, Abel gave to the Lord without motive, without concern for the adulation, without uh, expecting a pat on the back, you know, without what he might get out of it. He gave out of worship and out of love. And that's why God had respect unto Abel and to his offering. 
Abel gave his best for the sole purpose of worshiping, worshiping the Lord without expecting anything in return. Now, Cain, however, even though it appears that he gave his best, he did not do it out of love and worship. Now, when I first read those verses, I was like, well, it doesn't say anywhere, you know, that, you know, he gave it for expectations. It doesn't, you know, it says that, you know, hey, he brought the fruit of the ground and offering to the Lord. It said he gave his offering, but in the first part of that passage, I didn't really see, well, where does it actually say that Cain gave this in a selfish fashion? I'm like, you know what? I thought it said that, but it doesn't say that. But it didn't say that. But the Lord knows the heart of man. The Lord does not look on the outward appearance. He he looketh on the heart. So God's response, God's response to it is what says it all, and then Cain's response to God's response. So look at this. Cain did not have respect for... God did not have respect for Cain's offering, and Cain's reaction is what spoke the truth about why that he gave. And if you look at that verse again, it says he was wroth, and his countenance fell. So basically, he got mad, and his attitude just went down the toilet. I think that's the NIV translation. But his attitude just went down the toilet. He was upset. He was angry. And he ended up doing what? He ended up killing his brother Abel out of envy and jealousy. So even though we don't see Cain giving the offering with that expectation, we know by his reaction, we know that he gave with the expectation of, I'm giving this, I can't wait till the Lord sees this and how, how he's going to praise me and thank me and how he's going to pat me on the back and say what a great job he did. And that's the reason that he gave and that's the reason that he was not received. Now, how many of us, how many of us have we ever feel questioned in our intentions or our motives and have turned our wrath onto someone who doesn't deserve it? Have you ever been accused of something or ever your motive of why you did something? You said, well, you did that for a selfish reason. How do we react? Yeah. We oftentimes, we may not hopefully kill our brother, but we often do react, you know, in an angry way. Have you ever done something nice for someone and maybe that person doesn't appreciate it? Or maybe a little bit or maybe even at all? So when we do that, are we gracious? Are we loving? Are we, you know, wanting to do more for that person? Or do we grumble to ourselves, and a lot of times we end up grumbling to others. Can you believe that guy? I did so-and-so and this and that for him, and this is the thanks that I get? See if I ever do anything nice for him ever again, right? Yeah. Now, I've never done that, but I hear it's terrible. I hear it's a horrible <laughs> way to react. So just don't do that is what I'm trying to say. So jumping forward, uh, a little bit forward looking at David. So you look at David, is, is what do you hear David? What is David known as? In the Bible, a man after God's own heart. And Pastor talked about this, um, you know, last, last Sunday in, in service in uh, Bible study on Wednesday. He said, Yeah, but if you look at the second five commandments, David broke all five of those second five commandments. So for that, let's reference those real quick. Let's go to Exodus 20 and verse 13. In verse 13, it says, Thou shalt not kill. Exodus 14 says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Exodus 15, or Exodus 20, verse 15 says, Thou shalt not steal. 16 says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Shouldn't lie. 17 says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt, uh, shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So David broke all five of those, right? So most of us know the story, but I do want to recount, give you a quick Netflix preview version of it. 
You know, so as you know, David steps out on his roof and he sees Bathsheba uh, bathing on a roof, finds out from his servants uh, that he was the wife of one of his soldiers. So he saw her, got a little interested, but even despite that, oh, that's Uriah's wife? Did he say, oh my gosh, that's Uriah's wife? No, no, I shouldn't do anything. No. What does he do? He says, go, go bring her to me. So he has a servant go bring Uriah, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, to him for a little bit of loving. Again, that's an NIV version. He, she gets pregnant. David freaks out because it's going to reveal his sin. See, that's the other thing is it wasn't a matter of he did wrong, he feels repentant, and he goes to God with the heart of desiring uh, that uh, reconciliation. He goes, oh, my goodness, she's pregnant. I'm going to get found out. I'm going to be, my reputation is going to be garbage. You know, I'm all, the, the, whole land, the whole land, my people are going to know that I've done this, uh, this terrible, horrible thing. So what does he do? He calls Uriah back uh, for a break and says, you know what? You, you need a, you've been gone for a while. You need a break. Why don't you go get some love for your wife, spend some time together, you know, whatever you need to do to relax. And Uriah says, no, when my men are out fighting, I will not do that. I will not. I will sleep on the floor outside the door. I am not going to do that. So obviously David has to come up with a little bit more of an extreme solution. He sends a message to the battlefront. And that message is, when you are in the heat of battle and everything is going on around you, have all the other warriors, all the other soldiers step back and let Uriah be in the midst of all the fighting of all the enemy. It's going to be him against hundreds of other soldiers. And sure enough, he will die. So David murdered, straight out, flat out, David murdered Uriah. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Now, here's what happened afterward from the man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel verse 11, or 2 Samuel 11, verse 26, it says, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Selfish. Selfish, right? Even though he knew he was wrong, it was obvious because the second that he realized he was going to get caught, he panicked and had the man killed. So he knew he was wrong, and yet he made that decision. He made that choice, and he only decided to cover it up or only decided to make amends for it is because he was found out. Now, on a side note, just kind of give you a little tangent, I hate to waste food. Those of you that know me, I love food. I hate to waste food. Uh, I, can't, I despise it. I can't stand it. Um, I just hate throwing away something that could feed somebody, you know, that could support somebody, um, that, that just goes in the garbage for no good reason. Anyway, in most cases, uh, when I make lunch for Cadence or my wife, um, everything's fine. Uh, but now and then, uh, trying to get back to work or I need to be somewhere or do something, get in a little bit of rush, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, uh, there's been a time when uh, the chicken wings and the french fries hit the floor of the kitchen. Um, and if those of you know about our household, uh, we have two dogs, and sometimes we have three or four if we have Carly's, and each and every one of them sheds profusely, I mean, hair everywhere. So I'm not going to lie. You know, there's times when that's happened. Um, do you know how hard it is to get every piece of dog hair off of a buffalo chicken wing? Now, my wife's freaking out. She's like, What? Um, no, but honestly, no, I, I have not. No, I didn't. I know. I did. I know, right? Um, but 
I did not. I chose not to serve those to my family. I did not. I didn't. But here's the point of the story, though. Why did I decide not to do that? Did I go, out of the goodness of my heart, it's the right thing to do. I should just throw these away, and I'll make some new ones. That's, what, that's just the right thing to do. Or deep down, did I go, you know what? If I pick every hair off and I clean every little French fry, so and so and take it up, my fear was my wife would find the one dog hair that I did not find on that chicken wing, and I would face her wrath. So it's kind of the same idea, because why did David repent? David didn't do it because he felt uh, you know, a sense of love and, and, again, reconciliation with the Lord. He did it because he was like, oh, my gosh, I got found out. So just a little personal testimony. We're selfish. I'm selfish. I'm assuming you're selfish as well. Now, we're more concerned with ourselves, how we are viewed by others, how we can avoid pain, and how we can seek pleasure. And oftentimes we struggle or push back against what God wants for us. And a prime example of that is Jonah. If you know the story of Jonah, we go to Jonah 1.1, the very beginning of the book. And it says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. And he, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So imagine the word came straight from God. It said, Jonah, go. It wasn't like a premonition, wasn't a, any kind of gray area. He said, Jonah, Go to Tarshish. They are sinners. Their city is doomed. You need to go and witness to them, you know, and allow them a chance for salvation. And he said, I do not like the Ninevites. I do not want to go there. They don't deserve salvation. You're not going to make me. He jumped on a boat and went the exact opposite way. Now, for Jonah to listen and obey the Lord, what had to happen? God had to bring a great storm upon the ship that he was on. He had to have Jonah thrown overboard into that tumultuous water. He had to have him swallowed up by a huge fish. And lastly, he had to be vomited up on the shore from that great fish before Jonah finally said, okay, all right, Lord, all right, I'm going to go. So all those things that happened, so at the end of it, do you think Jonah decided out of the goodness and the generosity of his heart that he was going to go to Nineveh now? No. He did it because why? He was selfish. He said, I don't want to go through that again. If I don't do what, the God te- do what the Lord tells me to do, I very well can face more punishment, more pain, more suffering. I don't want to deal with that. So again, where are you and I in our Christian lives? Are we submitting to the Lord with love and with praise? Are we putting what we want first? And if we have the time for him, then that's what he gets. Even if we are worshiping, even if we are sacrificing, are we doing it like Cain? where our motive is where we want recognition and thankfulness from the great I am? I mean, that's a ridiculous statement, but are we doing that? Or a lot of times what we're giving and what we're doing and how we are worshiping is all that coming from our own desire of how we want to feel as a result of that. So now we've been through the pictures of the Old Testament. Now let's look at the instruction, which comes from the New Testament. And I want to focus on three areas of how our selfishness presents itself. The first is the selfishness of salvation. Now, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, do you remember where you were 
the day that you got saved, you remember where you were emotionally, physically, and mentally immediately before you got saved. Now, I know we love to hear John 3.16, and we can put John 3.16 up on the monitor. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, that is the most wonderful, glorious statement of God's love that anyone could ever hear. But when we got saved, did we care about the whole world? Did we care about every other sinner out there? that needed the Lord, immediately before we got saved, who did we care most about? Ourselves. I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. I need a new start. I need Jesus in my life. Now, the amazing thing is, that selfishness, God, I never understand how God works, but it is obvious and apparent in so many things in my life, and our lives, that He has done that made no sense to me have come in full circle to glorify him and to show that he is a miracle-working God. Only God can take one of the worst offenses in being selfish, you know, being self-centered, only thinking about oneself. Only God can take that and turn it into a situation that said, I'm going to use that selfishness. I'm going to use that need that you have, the desire for happiness, a desire for avoiding pain, the desire for all these things that you want, I'm going to take that and I'm going to allow you to come to salvation as a result. Because it is. What brings us to the Lord is our desire, our selfishness. But once we have that out of the way, and we have that forgiveness, we have that salvation, we have that eternal relationship with the Lord, God's desire for us is not to stay selfish. The second we get saved, we know our past does not bind us in chains anymore, that we will be God, with God for eternity. So how do you feel? Again, remembering back the minute before you were saved, remember back to the minute after you got saved, how did you feel? Elated? Excited? Blessed? Amazing? But are these selfless feelings or are they selfish feelings? If we stop there, If that's it and we're done, we're saved, we accept Christ, we know we have a home, and we stop there, we demonstrate the desire of the flesh even in our salvation. But how many of you had a nagging feeling just after you got saved that there's more? I can't be the only one out there that just needs Jesus. What about my brother? What about my sister? What about my parents? What about my friends? What about my coworkers? We don't get saved and get over it. We need to overcome the selfishness of our flesh and share the truth with those in this world around that need it. And if we look at uh, 2 Corinthians verse 5, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know him, know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
And if we look back at the first part of that verse, the word constrain, constrain means to compel or to force someone to follow a particular, particular course of action or to do a certain thing. So the love of Christ, in essence, forces us, it compels us to believe that he died for us. And in turn, we should die to ourselves. We should die to our flesh to live for him. There's no better way to live for him than to share the glorious gospel and bring others to him. Point number two. And our selfishness is the greed of grace. Now, we've heard it quite a few times, but let's review exactly what grace means in biblical terms. Grace is where we receive something from God that we do not deserve. Salvation is the ultimate example of this. We receive that, obviously, what we deserve is not that. The fact that we have an eternal relationship with a loving God, despite the fact that we do not deserve it, is a true explanation of grace. In Ephesians 2 verse 8, it says, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not anything we deserve, not anything we do, not anything that we can earn. It is God's grace alone that allows for salvation. If you've ever heard that we are in an age of grace, this is what that means. There's a very clear transition biblically in how God's people were under the Mosaic law versus the time after Jesus came. And if we look at John 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, the day that we live in, we contradict the word because we, a lot of us believe we deserve grace. Isn't that, the world, isn't that what the world is promoting right now? Everyone deserves to have everything. People should be able to live how they want, do what they want, believe what they want, but still be loved and supported and blessed. But that's what God would want, right? No. So many people believe that they deserve grace, but that contradicts the actual word itself. Grace is receiving the blessings that we don't deserve. So that self-desire, that self-belief that we deserve grace actually contradicts the word itself. God gives grace through faith, through belief in his word, through submission to his way, we don't deserve it, but, if we can, but we can have it if we are faithful, not just because we're breathing. Third point, the me in mercy. While grace is where we get things from God that we don't deserve, blessings, love, salvation, a relationship with him forever, mercy is us not getting what we deserve from, what we deserve from God as a result of our disobedience. Punishment, pain, suffering, and eternal separation from him. Now, when most people think of a loving God, we think that God, you know, giving blessings and giving grace. But obviously when I was studying, I used Google, not going to lie, um, did a word search in the Bible, and I searched grace, and I searched mercy. Mercy actually came up almost twice as many times in the Bible as the word grace. Now, I believe God is a merciful God even more than he is a graceful God. Think of it this way. If you're working your job, just doing the basic requirements, and your boss comes in and says, here's a $100 bonus. 
for no reason at all. So he's giving you grace, right? He's giving you a blessing. You're like, sweet. Like, I don't deserve this, but amen. We're going to Olive Garden tonight. I'm taking this hundred bucks. We're going to have fun. We're going to spend it. Now, if you're working your job and you screw up royally, there's no excuses. It is your fault. And the result of it, you lose customers, you lose the company money, maybe even put some other people's jobs in jeopardy by the actions that you've done. Your boss comes in and you like, I am, I'm getting fired. I know I'm getting fired. I, I deserve to be fired. I should not have this job. Uh, this is it. This is the end. But he sits down with you. He looks you in the eye. He says, it's okay. He knows it was a mistake and even it was due to carelessness or lack of paying attention or whatever it was that made it your fault. He said, it's okay. You're not going to lose your job. He'll take the blame for it, and you'll still be welcome back to work tomorrow. Which of those two scenarios are you more grateful for? Which are you more thankful for? The mercy. The mercy. And that's a direct correlation of, of how God looked upon us with his mercy when he sent Jesus Christ to die on that cross. We have a loving God that, yes, he blesses us with grace, but he truly loves us through his mercy. In Titus 3, verse 3, it says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Good Lord, how I need mercy. Are we sometimes foolish? Are we disobedient? Serving lusts and pleasures? Having envy and hatefulness? All this sounds like me. All this sounds like us. This is what we do. Yes, I need mercy, Lord. Me. In Ephesians 2, verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That, that's double, right? That's a double whammy. God's mercy allows us not to reap the harvest of our sins, but instead, through his grace, allows us a place to sit with Christ. Amen. Amen. But again, when we go searching in the Bible, when we go to the Lord in prayer, when we sit in service on a Sunday morning, what do we want? We want him to speak to me. I want to get something out of today's Bible reading. I want God to hear my prayers and answer them. I want the preacher to give me something in the message that's going to make my day better, make my life better. Me, me, me. Now, I'm 1,000% guilty of that. No question. I come to the Lord day after day, week after week, month after month, looking to be satisfied in what I want from him. Now, do I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins? Absolutely. Was he buried in a borrowed tomb? Absolutely. He rose again the third day? Absolutely. I believe every single verse. Have I truly accepted him into my heart? Absolutely. Now, since being born again into the family of God, have I lived my life 100% for him? Nope. 90%? No. 
50%? Probably not. I mean, I keep going, but it gets a little bit embarrassing after that point. 1%? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, you're, like, you're laughing, but it's true. Um, so when I titled this message, it was a reflection of how many of us are in our Christian lives. But it's, about my, but it's really about how I am. It's about my failures. It's about my shortcomings. It's my weakness, my selfishness. My life is all about me. It's not about him. In Philippians 2, verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I want to break down that verse a little bit more specifically because that's really the key verse when I was going through this lesson that I had to go back to and back to and back to. It talks about strife talks about a spirit of contradiction or contention, which is inconsistent of being like-minded. That's strife. You know, in that strife, it says, don't let nothing be done through that. We, we need, want to be like-minded, like Christ, like Jesus himself. Vainglory is a desire of praise. Again, if we look at how Cain gave his offering, he gave it with vainglory. He did not give it with selfish, selflessness. It is a desire of praise, wishing to draw eyes of others upon you, making yourself the subject of admiration. Who does that sound like? Lucifer. You had someone who God had blessed, the most amazing, beautiful creature that could have been used and made for the sole purpose of singing the praises of the Lord and just exalting him to the day is done. But instead, he wanted to be the subject of, of admiration and draw others' eyes upon him. Later in the verse, it says, look not on every man on his own things. So don't focus on your own stuff, your own issues, your own wants, your own life. It says, but every man also on the things of others. So we can't let the selfishness of salvation, the greed of grace, or the me and mercy to dominate our lives. God doesn't want our works. He doesn't want our money doesn't want our offerings that we think are worthy. He only wants our hearts. Our lives should be all about him, not about us, not because we want God to bless us, but because we want to, not because we want to earn his mercy, but because we truly love him because he loved us first. In 1 John 4, very simply, verse 19, it says, We love him because he first loved us. Now, Last weekend, Kim and Kyer and I were walking down the beach, and of course, <laughs> she's like, what is he going to tell about this story? There's some very funny parts of that story that I won't tell you from here, but I'll tell you in person if you want to know about it. But anyway, Kim and I and Kyer were walking down the beach last weekend, and of course, I was wearing the standard attire that I always wear, which is a Hope Baptist t-shirt. I think I own a dozen of them. Uh, it was the new white one. You know, on the front, it says, love, love, love God, love people, and on the back, it says hope, a place of restoration. So we were walking, and they, they, they had stopped, looked at some shells or whatever, and I was walking a little bit ahead of them, you know, maybe you know, between me and where Brother Derek is. Um, and then, like, I kind of noticed that they weren't, they weren't with me, so I'm, like, turned around, and they were talking to this young, you know, 20, 22, 23-year-old young man, 24, sorry, got the bio for, you know, just in case my eldest daughter's looking for someone. But anyway, so I stopped and turned around, and I was like, oh, hey, 
you know, nice friendly conversation and, you know, walked back. He said, well, they wanted to know. He wanted to know what's on the back of your shirt. Uh, you know, on the back of the shirt. I said, oh, okay. So I turned around and says, you know, it's a place of restoration. A uh, young man named Caleb, um, you know, once he was able to see and read my shirt, he's like, you know what? I was in Bible study this morning with my dad. And we're like, well, let's pick one word to focus on, one word to kind of pray, pray about. And his word was restore. You know, and it's amazing how God used that little connection, you know, to bring us together to have this conversation. And then we talked for a while. We talked about a lot of stuff. Yeah, we won't talk about some of it, but we talked a lot about stuff, mainly about our testimony, mainly about the church, you know, mainly about, uh, you know, things of the Lord, obviously, um, and how amazing God is and, and how God brought us to the Lord and how God, you know, had brought Caleb to the Lord. And it was funny because he said when he was in college, because he's 24 years old, he said he'd been saved for about five or six months, I believe. You know, I could be off, but for the sake of story, we'll say that's what it is. Um, he's been saved for, you know, five, six months. But he said, well, in college is when I realized that I needed to be saved. I needed the Lord when I was in college. And I'm like, well, he's out of college. He said five or six months. I'm like, this didn't add up. So we got a little bit deeper. And he said, well, I talked to my dad. I said, well, hey, dad. Yeah, I'm in college. You know, I'm ha- we're having a- I'm having a lot of fun. I know stuff that's probably not really that you approve of or the Lord approve of, but you know, I, I think for a while I just want to. Can I just have my fun? I'm just going to have my fun, and then when I get out of college, when I graduate or come home or whatever, you know what? Then I'm going to, you know, get saved. Then I'm going to accept Christ, and I'm going to I'm going to live for the Lord. But for now, can I just do what I want to do? And man, yeah, that hit me. Because where was I? Yeah. I remember when I got saved. And I look back, why didn't I, the first, you know, there's people like Pastor. Pastor heard the, the, ver, the gospel and was like, I'm saved. I'm in. You know, go for it. But then I look back, I was like, what decision did I make? It wasn't because I didn't believe in God. It wasn't because I didn't know that Jesus Christ died on a cross. It was selfish. I was like, maybe I'm not done doing what I want to do. Maybe I'm not done focusing on me. Maybe it's just not time. The Lord's going to be there. You know, when I'm ready, <laughs> how self-centered, how egotistical is that, that my decision to come to salvation was that God should wait on me. And it hit me. How many of us have a similar testimony? How many of us do what we want to do and know that God will be there waiting for us when we're done? Imagine if you went through the pain and the suffering and the agony that Jesus went through to give the gift that was given. And the response that you get is, maybe later. Maybe later I'll come. In James 4, verse 14, it says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, then vanisheth away. So we could be taken tomorrow. And what if we aren't done with our fun by then? But even if we're here for years and years, is it right to wait to do what God desperately wants you to do? For the love of God, if you need to get saved, get saved. If you need to get right with God, get right with God. Just do it. We've made this all about us and not about him. But we are able to break the chain of selfishness through Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I just just thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Lord, I know that I don't spend the time that I should with you. I know that I don't uh, 
focus on your desires for my life as much as I should, Lord. I know that this lesson, if nothing else, Lord, was for me. And that selfishness in my heart uh, and that desire to serve uh, my priorities above yours, Lord, I just ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you wash those away from me, Lord. I just pray that you give me a renewed heart, uh, that you would allow allow us as as born-again believers to put you first in our lives and realize that uh, the salvation should not be selfish. That that grace that you've given us, we should not take it for granted. Lord, and that mercy, Lord, it's not about me. Lord, it's all about you. And Lord, I pray if there's there's anyone in the service today, Lord, I pray that if there is any doubt in your mind, any doubt in your heart, that you have accepted Christ as your Savior. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts today. Lord, if you're that person sitting here, or you're watching online, or you're watching this later, if you know that you don't deserve heaven, if you know that you're a sinner and you've done things wrong, you know that what we deserve for that is not a relationship with God. What we deserve for that is to be separated from heaven. But if today's the day and you want that relationship, I just pray that you would accept Christ as your Savior. And I'm going to say a prayer, and again, my stumbling words, my awkward tongue just won't do it justice, but it's not about the words. It's not about uh, the ideas that come from us. It is about God's love and it's about your heart. So if you're sitting in the service, you're watching online, and you know that today's the day that you need Jesus Christ in your heart as your Savior, then just repeat after me in your heart and in your mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve the separation from you. I know that I've done some things wrong, and Lord, though I regret them, I know they were done selfishly. Lord, I pray uh, that you come into my heart. I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know, I know that you can take them away from me. I pray that you come into my heart. I pray that you save my soul, that I have a home in heaven and a relationship with you for eternity. Lord, I love you. I thank you and praise you for what you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.